9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I am David Rothkopf. I am somewhere outside of New York City, about to go home after a month uh, at a rest, summer rental, and I'm depressed and uh, can barely bear it, but it's been a very nice month out here. The weather's been great, um, and there's a lot of work beckoning. Um, uh, meanwhile, across America, we have our <laughs> regular team. Um, Corey, where are you? Corey Shockey of AEI, where are you? I am west of the 100th meridian for the remainder of the summer. Home in my dusty little cow town of Sonoma, California. The, du- yeah, the dusty little cow town. You're about to go see a minor league baseball game, I heard. Yes, my dad and I are headed to see the Sacramento River Cats, one of the best AAA ballparks in which to watch a game. It's going to be glorious. Um, yeah, you know, a river cat is probably a euphemism for like a large rat or something. <laughs> Um, and uh, in, uh, let's see, in Alexandria, Virginia, or no, where are you, Rosa? Rosa Brooks of Georgetown, I, where I are you? I can't reveal that. Oh, another secret. I can't reveal okay. that right now. Um, and David, right. I don't understand what you're talking about, about work beckoning, whatever beckoning. Sometimes it grabs me by the ankle and yanks me, and sometimes it gives me the finger, but it never beckons. <laughs> Uh, I, I understand that completely. And in, in Washington, near the White House, keeping an eye on everything uh, at a Starbucks, we have the New York Times' David Sanger. Is everything fine at the Starbucks, David? You know, the Starbucks is just a font of policymaking, you know, and uh, <laughs> as, as usual, uh, I had to, you know, decide what it was I was going to drink that would get me through Deep State Radio. And this is hard to do when you're doing it with, you know, with, with, with you guys, because Corey would be forever optimistic and tell me to go, you know, order anything I wanted. Yes, yet, she would. Yes. And, and yet those who uh, wear the crown of, what is it, entropy or something, would say, you can drink water. <laughs> yeah. yeah you've got the, after after doing this this gang doing this for six or so years you've got them down pretty good um so let me ask a question i'll start with rosa wherever she is but then we'll go around the group um apparently you know u.s uh, uh forces bombed um some uh militia forces uh in iraq last night uh, or iraq and syria last night um, and the question is, is this just something that's going to go on forever and ever? Yes, probably. Um, or maybe not forever and ever, because being the holder of the thorny crown of entropy, I can tell you that nothing goes on forever and ever, uh, except chaos, um, which will continue and expand. But, but no, I mean, I, I certainly think for the foreseeable future, this isn't going to change. I mean, this has already become a, a sad ritual, right? Um, which is that Iranian-backed militias uh, do something that either involves attacks 
that are directly on U.S. personnel or that are on our allies or that are on our Iraqi allies and we retaliate in some way, shape or form. And then the Iraqi government that's a largely pro forma, uh, don't do that. We're a sovereign nation. You ought to ask us first and so on. And, and we sort of, you know, pay no attention and things get quiet for a little while. And then we repeat this, uh, you know, six months later or whenever, whenever the next episode happens. I, you know, I, I don't think there's any particular pressure, un- unlike in the case of Afghanistan, there's no particular pressure on Biden to pull the remaining U.S. military advisors out of Iraq. Uh, and I don't, unless, I, I'd be interested to see what my colleagues think, but I don't get the sense that the Iraqi government is any more serious this time than other times about saying, no, 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 you really can't. Um, uh, so I think this is a bit of theater that unfortunately is going to keep playing out with no particular I don't think it's going to lead to any change either strategically or, or tactically, tactically either. I think it's just status quo, unfortunately. Corey, when uh, my youngest daughter was born, I recall sitting in the hospital watching um, shots of the United States beginning, uh, you know, an invasion of Iraq in 1991. Um, will, Will this end before she retires? So, David, you are framing this as endless war, and and I know you did it on purpose to bait me, uh, because I reject that framing. What we are doing is helping the Iraqi government prevent the uh, surreptitious control of their country by Iranian militia, and that's why they only object in a pro forma way for what are admittedly violations of their sovereignty that are in their national interests, as is their ability to blame us for doing them. Um, So so it will go on until Iranians are too weak for the Iraqi government to be able, not to be able to handle this on their own and the Iraqi government does that hard, unpleasant work of protecting their sovereignty from Iranian uh, control. So yeah, it's going to go on for a long while. I love the way you framed this. It really, you're living up to the tiara of optimism because you have just sort of framed violation of sovereignty as a new form of US foreign aid. <laughs> It's just such, it's, it's such an upbeat. Um, but, but to Rosa's point, the Iraqi government actually has the ability to prevent this from happening. They just aren't preventing it. So yeah. it's not a violation of their sovereignty it, so much as it is um, us pretending we violate their sovereignty and them pretending they're outraged by it. This just sounds like Casablanca to me, yep. not the yep. city, the movie. Um, By the way, the movie ends up good for freedom, so. Yeah, no no question about it. It's a beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, speaking of which, there's David Sanger. Yeah. Uh, listening to all of this. In the White House, does it even, you know, ruffle a feather to talk about, do they even bother to talk about this kind of thing? Or does it just like, oh, yeah, that happened again. It's, it's. Um, so they talk about it at some length in today's uh, briefing and so forth. But I think to some degree in our in our natural way of wrapping ourselves with the thought of, is this endless conflict? And is it a violation of sovereignty? 
I think we're missing the point about what the Iranian strategy is here. Remember, what Biden hit yesterday was not just your, you know, your terrorist base of the kind we would have thought of when David's daughter was being born. What they hit was a facility that was building highly accurate UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, that uh, if you believe the administration's um, uh, account here, has attacked U.S. facilities or U.S. troops uh, five times since April. And that's a really interesting development because when five years ago, six years ago, when the Iran nuclear deal was signed, the Iranians had no way of building accurate unmanned aerial vehicles. They were not really seriously in the drone business. They were barely in the cyber business. So what you're learning now is that they are gaining a capability to find ways to harass the United States remotely in the recognition that they aren't going to get a nuclear weapon. So why not follow the Russian and Chinese model and come up with some other ways short of war to go bleed us a bit in the Middle East? So Rosa, you've spent a lot of time discussing, you know, the future of warfare. And, you know, I can just see a scenario here where our unmanned vehicles, you know, bomb their unmanned vehicle factories, and then, you know, our uh, artificial intelligence programs uh, automatically pretend that we're not violating their sovereignty and theirs automatic. And, you know, we eliminate human beings from all of this, but the that we, we, we somehow automate this kind of uh, low-grade uh, back and forth. What do you think? It is, isn't that really where this is all going? Well, uh, I remember our friend Tom Ricks joking once at a conference that, you know, war would be so much better if all the uh, un, un, unmanned vehicles could just slug it out together and then they could just email us later to let us know who won. Just think how, <laughs> how much simpler it would be. Yeah, but that's, you know, I mean, isn't that the objective of unmanned vehicles? <laughs> yeah, it never quite works out that way, right? Um, um, you know, humans somehow seem to keep getting caught in the middle. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's true. But, you know, uh, uh, Corey, David mentioned cyber because he likes to mention cyber, and that's his thing, you know. But the front page of the uh, Financial Times today said there's a new report out saying that the Chinese are actually 10 years behind us. They're and we're being hysterical about the Chinese cyber threat. So does that mean, David, does, can, can, does that mean you can say, David, you're exactly wrong? Sadly, no. David continues to be exactly right. The assessment my former colleagues at the International Institute for Strategic Studies produced suggested that China or concluded that Chinese and Russian offensive capabilities are hugely impressive, but their focus on content control, that is the great Chinese firewall, Russians trying to create their own internet so that these universally attractive ideas of human dignity and individual rights don't creep into either of their political systems, uh, their focus on content moderation, 
has left them uh, defensively more vulnerable than the United States and other societies. And it highlights a very important point that we think of too infrequently, which is that the United States benefits overwhelmingly from the cooperation of the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Network and the intelligence cooperation among our NATO allies, our East Asian allies, we get a better picture of what's happening as a result of us playing team sports. And that's why the IISS assessment concludes that the United States alone among countries is in the top tier of cyber capabilities. To the point about David's outstanding book, The Ultimate Weapon, um, the IISS argues that the U.S. alone has the ability to do precision strike in cyber. And I would love to know whether David shares that assessment. The IISS put in the second tier, Australia, Israel, the U.K., um, China, several others. Um, but but they conclude that the U.S. alone has what we would call full spectrum capability. I think that's I think that's right, Corey. I think they've done the list right. Their list is very similar to everybody else's list. You know, having the world's best cyber capability is different from being willing to go use the world's best cyber capability. And for all kinds of reasons and all kinds of lawyers. We frequently hesitate to go make use of it. The, what struck me about the IISS uh, assessment is that it focused more on capabilities than it did on how each of these countries use cyber. Huh. And that's almost as important because the U.S. wants needs a precision capability because we don't want to go about causing a lot of collateral damage, right? We, we want to be able to take out a North Korean or Iranian missile program without hitting the hospitals and the power grid. The -hmm. Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, they may not have the precision capability, but they may not care what the collateral damage is. So, uh, and and they also uh, very much, I think, are determined along the way to show that they can use, that they are more willing to use this weapon than we are. And therefore that that gives them some asymmetrical advantage. So while I found the report very helpful in sort of ranking capabilities, I'm not sure it told us a whole lot about the future of cybercom. Interesting. I noticed you nodding several times, Rosa. Would you have thoughts on this? No, the same same thoughts. I agree completely with both Corey and David. I I think that it's both true and irrelevant that uh, the U.S. is ahead in terms of cyber capabilities, um, for all the same reasons that it you know true 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 but irrelevant uh, in the when we were supposedly in a global war on terror that the U.S. had stronger military capabilities across the board than Al Qaeda or ISIS, et cetera. You know the the nature of the of the game, if you will, and I, I don't mean to trivialize it by calling it a game. Um, you know, is that uh, it's it's asymmetrical, and and you can have far less sophisticated capabilities, far less extensive capabilities, 
Um, but if you are using them in a sort of smart, strategic way um, to sort of poke holes and freak people out and you know that your adversary, despite its uh, uh, dominance in terms of uh, in terms of capabilities, is not likely to be able to act with his with his with his few constraints, um, you can you can still do a whole lot of damage and you can arguably still achieve your your strategic goals. So, so I think that, you know, David is, David is precisely right that the more interesting question has to do with um, how different, how different states and non-state actors for that matter, uh, put what capabilities they have to use um, and what mechanisms are there for effective response from the United States and from other, other powers that do care about international law at least. Some of the time, um, and that do care about uh, collateral damage to civilian infrastructure, at least most of the time. Um, you know what? What? What can we do? Is it just a matter of well, we have to harden our defenses and hope for the best because we are unlikely to ever be willing to behave in as unconstrained a manner as adversaries? Um, or are there other things that we can do that are more aggressive and are more proactive, but that don't run afoul of our general commitment to not causing uh, more chaos than we absolutely have to, and more damage than we absolutely have to uh, in the broader world. So th that that strikes me as the more interesting set of questions. Yeah, it's David. By by example here, um, ransomware isn't particularly uh, sophisticated to go do, or most ransomware attacks. The one on Colonial Pipeline wasn't especially sophisticated, and yet you saw the degree of damage. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating concept because we have sophisticated weapons in part because we don't want to use them. And the fact that their weapons are not that sophisticated may not make as much of a difference if they have the will to use them. Um, Corey, there was another interesting piece in the New York Times um, uh, uh, just now about Hong Kong. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but it was you know essentially a piece that sort of traced the evolution of Chinese policy towards Hong Kong from the arrival of Xi Jinping through now, and particularly over the course of the past year, uh, when essentially they've embraced a policy of we're gonna do whatever we want in Hong Kong. Is the special status of Hong Kong over? Yes, sadly, the special status of Hong Kong is over because the Chinese are unwilling to honor their treaty commitments. Uh, to preserve it for 25 years. And it, they have crushed freedom in Hong Kong and, and sort of the symbol of the broader tragedy of crushing Hong Kong was the, the closure of Apple Daily uh, newspaper. As Jimmy Lai, the head of the, the owner of Apple, New, Apple Daily often said, you have a free economy in Hong Kong because you have a free press in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong's going to become a metaphor for China's broader strangulation of the practices that had been helping it become prosperous and strong. They stopped uh, market liberalization policies. They are internally repressive and not just to minorities like the Uyghur, but the construction of the surveillance state. They um, 
are internationally aggressive in the East and South China seas and increasingly predatory as far beyond Asia as their remit permits. But what we currently see is a China aggressive because it is stampeding towards success. And I'm increasingly of the view that we see a China where the government understands it is stalling and it may have reached the zenith of its power and it is trying to grab as much as it can before that realization becomes uh, generally accepted. You know, David, there was a kind of a subtext about all of this that I noticed today um, in, a, in a little bit of a Twitter exchange because there was a, I saw a little bit of a Twitter report in which it said that um, the United States trade representative was reluctant to enter into new trade discussions with the Taiwanese, um, but was essentially talked into it by the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And uh, uh, there was a comment on Twitter from a, a friend of ours who said something to the effect of, is this the way it's going to work when the White House disagrees with an agency, which I think was implicitly critical. But the, the, the reality is, you know, it seems like this White House, this national security advisor is going to do everything in their power um, to gain leverage vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese and to show that they're not being cowed by the Chinese. And these kind of discussions with the Taiwanese are part of that. Did that come up today? Have you talked to people there about that? I have, I have not because I was uh, on vacation last week. But prior to that, it was pretty clear that they've got a fairly complex Taiwan play that they are gradually unwinding here. But they've never described. They've never talked about it in public. And so you've sort of got to piece it together by what they do. Part of it is trying to make sure that they're spreading Taiwan semiconductors capabilities, the, the one most advanced chip maker beyond Taiwan itself so that the Chinese don't have as big a target. The second is to try to go begin these kind of trade negotiations with Taiwan and others so that they are essentially treating Taiwan as they would treat a state without actually violating the understanding that they're not a state. So they are putting a lot more pressure on the Chinese to think about how invested the U.S. is in Taiwan than I think previous administrations have. I suspect this will work. I don't think the Chinese are going to go after Taiwan directly for a number of years. I don't think they think they can risk it, nor do they think it's probably worth the risk. But it would be fascinating if Jake Sullivan and others, or Campbell is putting together China policy, would begin to sort of explain the Taiwan play. Because it's different from what their predecessors, both Democratic and Republican, have done. Um, was that your dog's commentary on my, my yeah, explanation of Taiwan? It was an politics? endorsement, David. No, I don't think it was. My wife is taking Chinese this summer, and I think the dog has turned on us. Um, <laughs> or the dog was always a plant. Yeah, no, that's also possible. He's a red dog. But in any event, 
Um, also, it's uh, also possible the dog has views about your leaving your little summer baths there. Yes, no question. No question about that. Um, Rosa, I got to tell you that all of this makes me a little apprehensive. While I agree with Corey's assessment and I agree with David's assessment about the Chinese, um, you know, it's, it's, it does seem like this administration is turning up the heat and is making not just China policy central, but treating China as our, uh, the primary adversary central. Uh, there, there's, you know, it's, you know, China uh, is certainly a rival and uh, poses a challenge in a lot of fronts, uh, but there is also no question that China, you know, is, a, is, is more complicated than the old Soviet days where it's not a, uh, 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 you know, a kind of zero sum game as it was back then. So the question in my mind is, do you think we're overdoing it? Do you think we're going too hard into a new era of uh, toughness on China? Uh, you know, one of the questions that comes to my mind is actually very parallel to, to a question that I think we should be asking about China with regard to Taiwan and Hong Kong as well, which is, I mean, how much of the commentary from the Biden administration and Biden administration spokespeople about China is aimed at China and at really changing how we interact with China and how much of it is, is due to domestic politics, frankly, um, and doesn't necessarily indicate any really significant shift in, in relations with China. And I think the same question, as I said, can be asked about China. You know, how much of what's going on in Hong Kong, how much of the rhetoric about Taiwan is really about doing something as opposed to about signaling to domestic constituencies um, that, you know, they might be willing to do something and, and heating up the rhetoric in a way that makes domestic constituencies happy. It, on the one hand, you know, it'd be sort of reassuring to think that on both sides, there's a little bit of, of muscle flexing uh, that is intended for domestic constituencies and does not indicate any, you know, escalation of a Cold War, much less, God forbid, a hot war uh, someday between the two the two nations. Um, on the other hand, that that's always dangerous, that 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 kind of uh bifurcation, if if it exists, and I don't know if it exists, between between external intentions and uh, language and actions intended to calm, soothe, inspire, motivate domestic audiences, um, there's a danger that it can be misread on, on either side. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, the, the rhetoric is, is a little bit more amped up. I don't, I don't see it as, I don't think it's likely, I, I certainly don't think the Biden administration wants to do anything that could escalate things. Um, I, I think in general, my sense is that most of the Biden administration folks who work on this would, would basically agree with your assessment, you know, th as, as you put it, that that sure, there are threats, but there are also areas of common interests. And it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, we, we need to try to find a way to simultaneously prepare to combat potential threats and not do it in a way that just inflames the situation um, because we also, you know, are going to have to live with each other most likely. And it would be a really horrific thing for both nations if anything erupted into any kind of open conflict. Um, so I, I, I think that's where they are. Um, so I'm inclined to think that any rhetoric and actions to the contrary are not, are either inadvertent or are intended for domestic audiences, but, but I don't know for sure. What do you think, Corey? Um, 
I think that China's overriding national security concern is the communist power, the communist party remaining in power in China. And I agree with Tom Wright's assessment in his uh, book, All Measure Short of War, that China believes that the United States is incapable of not yearning for regime change in China. And I think they're right in that, right? The truths we hold to be self-evident, we don't just hold to be self-evident in American society. We think all people yearn for what we have. Um, And the difference, I think, is that the United States has for 30 years had a policy of welcoming China's prosperity and strength provided it plays by the rules. And what China is propagating is um, a preferent, a set of rules preferential to Chinese uh, advance and detrimental to other countries. And so it's in China's interest to make this sound like a great power competition and to make it sound like a US versus China and everyone else on the sidelines, when in actuality, the United States lags behind China, lags behind Australia, lags behind Japan, lags behind Canada in the stridency of its China policy. But we and 30 or 40 other countries are all slowly working towards a policy consensus of how to constrain China into playing by the rules. Um, So we do ourselves damage by by terming great power competition what's happening, as opposed to there are a lot of countries invested in the existing order, which, by the way, is more beneficial to small and medium powers than any other hegemonic order has been, and then is the order China describes itself as wanting. And and so we're banding together on this. And I do think the Biden administration gets that and is calibrating in that direction. David, can I take Corey's um, statement, which I agree with, but I think I might take a slightly more extreme view, that if you go back 20 years to when we let China, you know, agreed to let China into the WTO, the theory was that, that the rules of the West would gradually be the constraint on China because they wanted to join all of us. Then we discovered, no, 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 they really wanted to rewrite the rules internationally and run them to their benefit. And now we're discovering that at home, they want to demonstrate complete and total control, and that's what Hong Kong is about, Uh, and that abroad, they believe in the end that the West the, the West set of rules um, will not be enforced for them and that they can rewrite them at will and that ultimately we're going to have to bend to rules at, at least partly defined by China. And I'm not sure that's all that different from America's rise, uh, you know, 120 years ago, which uh, a panelist on this uh, show wrote a brilliant book about. Uh, where the U.S. also wanted to go rewrite the rules. But I do think that this administration 
is probably a whole lot tougher on how to go respond to this, certainly than Obama was, and probably than Trump was. And we can debate whether that's because they believe it's the only way to deal with China or because they believe that that's got to protect them politically at home. But I actually think they are veering off into a new form of Cold War. It doesn't look like the old one. The technologies are different. The ideological differences are different. But I think it is Cold War nonetheless. You know, Rosa, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about Corey's analysis um, uh, is that she really is taking a step back and looking at it in, 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 in a longer term perspective and, and essentially saying, and I, I don't mean to put words in Corey's mouth and would never attempt to do it, but it, it's saying this, this is, you know, th th this is part of the process of adjusting to China as a major power. And that the many countries of the world are coming to realize where, how they want to handle that. And that this notion mm -hmm. that, you know, this kind of emerging consensus of 30 or 40 countries about, you know, where they want to, you know, China to fit and that, that it's in their interest to work together to get them to fit there is, is, is progress. And in, you know, in some ways, accidentally, kind of what we were talking about in the 90s when we put China, you know, invited China into the WTO. Yeah. Is that a question? Well, it could have, I mean, yes, or, or just a, a provocative remark that, yeah, that which you could respond. I, I, maybe, I don't know. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have much of a response to that, David. I, I mean, and good question, good remark, good provocation. Well, I'm just sort of I'm, I'm sort of picking up on what on what Corey is is was saying, but I, I guess the other side of this, and maybe this is a place that we can wrap this up, picks up on what you were saying because it does seem to me that with regard to China, with regard to Russia, with regard to Israel, with regard to a bunch of these other places, a big chunk of U.S. foreign policy at the moment is don't make us have a foreign policy. You know, it's kind of like yeah. we want to stay focused here. You know we're going to be as tough as look as tough as we need to look to keep you from doing anything that distracts us from what's going on at home and 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 forces us to get engaged with you. That seems right to me. That seems right to me, both as an analysis of what is happening, and it actually seems right to me as a sensible way to approach things at this exact moment for the administration. Corey, when you go to the, the baseball game of the Sacramento Mud Wrestlers or whatever it is that you're about to go, will this conversation make you feel, you know, more secure about the future of American foreign policy? <laughs> yes, it will make me feel more secure about American foreign policy. Um, I do think the administration is um, continues a a necessary path of adjusting American strategy towards China and ironing out the contradictions and self-defeating elements of Trump administration strategy. And I do think that there is increasing convergence, um, not just in the United States about the risks that China poses, 
but among non-Asian countries as well. I mean, I, I had my Center for European Reform board meeting this morning, and I was surprised at the number of my European colleagues who were adamant that China poses an ideological challenge that requires European active participation in support of American policies. I don't think you'd have heard that out of the same Europeans even six months ago. And so I think we are underestimating our advantages in sustaining an international order that has been secure and prosperous for the United States and for many other countries. Well, that's just the kind of optimistic place that I think this deserves to come to an end. It's a summer day. Um, there, you know, the, 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 the world um, has problems, but many of them seem to be at least being addressed in a sensible way by the United States government. That's not the worst place we've been in. Uh, indeed, it's a lot better than where we've been for a long time. Uh, uh, and, uh, I, I, you know, I think we will leave it there until uh, next, our next program later in the week, our next show uh, of this series next week. If you want to know more about what we've got coming up, go to the dsrnetwork.com. We've got a really interesting um, uh, podcast coming on Wednesday as part of our, our series on books in which we're talking to uh, Jeff Garten, my former colleague in the government, about his new book on when the world gave up the gold standard, which is an absolutely fascinating story that's got a huge amount of resonance for today. Oh, that um, sounds great. You know, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, to everybody should watch, you know, David Sanger, I know, has all of his funds in Bitcoin at this point, Dogecoin and so forth. NFTs, <laughs> NFTs. I, I, just paid, I just paid my Starbucks in, in, in Dogecoin. I, yeah, no, I-, I don't, just, don't you I, always? Yeah, no, it's true. I'm actually selling NFTs of your original drafts of your articles, David. They're doing very well. <laughs> um, I'd, be interested, I'd be interested to know, first of all, uh, who's bidding on those? And um, secondly, whether you've actually gotten more than the equivalent of seven cents yet. Well, I'll, we'll discuss that. We'll discuss that offline. But I'll tell you what, we'll split everything above seven cents. Um, in, in any event, uh, uh, so that's uh, an interesting uh, episode coming up later this week. We've got more like that coming up. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for more about that. While you're there, you can hit the membership button and you can become a member and help support what we have been doing these uh, past four years and what we intend to do for a long time to come. Uh, and in the meantime, um, uh, thank you, David. Thank you, Corey. Uh, thank you, Rosa. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And stay healthy out there, everybody. Bye-bye.